Well, hey, cool, eh? Breaking free from your restrictions in life. You don't want to miss this show. Thanks. We're in Ephesians today. Uh, we've been continuing on in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. This is, this is week two, book of Ephesians. Last week, we looked at the whole big theme of uh, predestination. Very lightweight theme for a Sunday morning. Um, but we looked at it. Let's pray, and then we're going to get to work in the Bible. Father, I want to thank you so much for your presence here today. God, we love you with all our hearts. God, we thank you, Father God, for the freedom we have in Christ. Thank you, your spirit has come to bring freedom. Your word says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I pray for anyone here today, God, who is distant from you, who doesn't feel free, who is a slave to habits, who is a slave to fears, who is a slave to Satan. I pray today they would experience the liberty of God. I pray, God, that you'd break in in people's lives today. I pray for miracles. I pray sick bodies would be repaired. I pray lives would be turned around by your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, there were a bunch of guys, um, they just had a, it was a golf clubhouse and people were just gathering back in the clubhouse and people were just kind of getting stuff from the lockers. And the phone rang, there was a phone on the bench and the phone rang and one of the guys just picked up the phone and answered it and he said, hello. And it was a loudspeaker phone so everyone else could hear and uh, he said, hi honey, it's me. I said, oh hi. And she says, I'm just at the store and I've just seen a phenomenal leather jacket. It's 1,000 pounds. I said, okay, if I buy it. Yeah, sure. Oh, and by the way, before I got to the store today, um, I passed the Mercedes-Benz dealership and I saw a fantastic Mercedes. It's black and it's 60,000 pounds. It is phenomenal. It's the 2009 model. Uh, would you mind if I buy it? Sure, as long as it's got all the mod cons and everything, go for it. Oh, and by the way, I also noticed that that house we'd been interested in a year ago has come back in the market, 950,000 pounds. Uh, do, do you still want to go for it? Well, listen, 950, that's a bit high. Offer 900 and see what they say. Okay, thanks, honey, I love you. Thanks then, bye. All the guys in the clubhouse are looking at this guy. And he turns to him and says, has anyone got any idea whose phone this is? <laughs> Sometimes... Uh, we get a glimpse into another world, another world that we haven't experienced. And in Ephesians today, we're going to look into, the Apostle Paul uh, encourages us to have a look into an entirely different world that God has for us. A world, a realm that you've actually entered into, but yet you haven't understood it or maybe perceived it. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, and let, let, before we get into the verses here, let me just say that Ephesians 1 is, is if you want an outline for the chapter, of, chapter 1, uh, it's the Trinity. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And at the beginning of chapter 1, we discovered, as we looked at last week, that the Father, even before the foundation of the earth, had you in mind. And then we see the Son came into action. 2,000 years ago, God took on human flesh. And Jesus Christ came and he accomplished salvation. He died on the cross and rose again, making salvation available for everyone. So we see the Father, then we see the Son. And today we move into where Paul talks about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit. Today, the Father at the beginning of the foundation of the world had you in his minds. 2,000 years ago, the Son came and performed salv- accomplished salvation for, every man, for everyone who believes in him. And today the Holy Spirit is actively at work in our lives. Ephesians 1 verse 13. In him, 
you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him with him at his right hand in heavenly places. The Apostle Paul here is so excited. He's wanting you to grasp something. He's buzzing, you can hear it. He is excited about truth. He's been gripped with something and he wants you to get it. Bear in mind Paul is writing from a Roman prison and yet he's writing like a free man. You see, you have to know that your experience in life, your happiness or sadness, has nothing to do with your circumstance in life. It's everything to do with what you have grasped. And Paul is ecstatic. He's buzzing. He's wanting you to get it. And he's in a prison. Yet he's happy. You see, you can be a free man even if on the outside you were restricted. The apostle Paul is excited about Christ. Notice also that before Paul gets on in Ephesians, as we'll look at in, in the months ahead, is before Paul talks about spiritual warfare, our battle with Satan, he talks about that later in Ephesians. Before Paul talks about marriage, having a great marriage, being great parents. Before he goes on to explain to us what church leadership's all about, before he gets into any of that stuff, he talks about our relationship and our understanding of the Father and who we've become in Him. He talks about our relationship to Him and what that's done for us. You see, you have to understand in life, that is paramount. That comes before stuff. That becomes before understanding of leadership. That comes before finances. That becomes before relationships. That comes before everything. It's paramount. Your relationship with God's is absolutely paramount in your life. When that's in place, everything else follows. In fact, everything else makes sense. So Paul kicks in and he starts by talking about the gospel of your salvation. He says in verse 13, For in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him. According to Paul, there is a message that you can hear It's a true message. That if you believe in that message, you will be eternally saved. Paul is saying, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in it, your response to the word of truth was, I believe that. Then the Bible says, you're eternally saved. Let me take a moment to explain what that message is. What's the word of truth? What's this truth that Paul is saying is available, which if you believe in this message, will give you an eternal life? Here it is. The gospel means literally good news. That to understand the magnitude of the good news, you need to understand the magnitudes of the bad news. Makes sense. You don't appreciate good news if you didn't know what the bad news was in the first place. The bad news is this, that you and I, 
the human race are utterly, utterly and totally reprobate. We are far from God. We are rebellious to God. We are sinners bound for a lost eternity. That's what the Bible says. Real positive, huh? I wonder why the Bible message isn't that popular these days. It's kind of tough. It's raw. But sometimes truth is raw. The Bible says we are rebels. We are distant from God. We're against God. The Bible says from birth right through our life, we're sinners. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. We've not just sinned in our actions. We've sinned in our motivations. You see, we think, oh, don't do evil stuff. And first of all, you do. But secondly, it's not just the stuff you do that God judges you on. It's the stuff you think. It's your motivations. It's your attitudes. It's the stuff you thought about doing seriously. God judges you as if you actually did it. Your motivations are as bad as your actions in God's sight. Also, it's the things you didn't do. You say, I haven't done bad stuff, but you haven't done anything good either. What about the people you could have helped? What about the life you should have lived? How about the way you should have worshipped God, yet you lived like he wasn't there? You are a sinner, and that's the bad news. Now, when you understand that, and you understand that sin will be judged, and you'll be lost forever, then here's the good news. That God, even though that's true, God was so upset about this situation that he came and personally paid the price for you and for me. 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He, unlike us, was sin-free. He was born of a virgin. He wasn't the product of two human beings replicating themselves. And in that child, even putting in their nature, Jesus did not have a nature like ours. He wasn't a sinful person. And by choice, he lived sin-free. And in the summary of it all was this. The reason God came was to pay the price for the sins, was to pay the debt that was owed. And Jesus, when he hung and died on the cross, God was paying the price personally for the sins of the world so that we wouldn't have to go to a lost eternity, so that the sins could be removed. The blood that was shed on the cross means that you can be eternally forgiven. And he rose from the dead on the third day. He's alive now, and he's here to save you. By his spirit, he's in this room. He wants to save you forever right now. And the Bible says, when you heard the word of truth, I've just made a big claim there that I've described to you the truth about the human race. We're sinners, but God the Savior came to save you. That's truth. I believe that's truth. According to Paul, when you believe in that gospel, it becomes the gospel of your salvation. So here Paul is writing to people who have grasped the truth. And Paul knows they've got it because he understands they're authentic Christians. This is what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, verse 15 and 16, For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul knew they'd got it. Paul knew they were authentic believers because they had two things. They had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they loved the saints. You've got to have both to be an authentic believer. If you say, oh, I love God, can't stand church folk though, you're lying. If you say, oh, I love church, it's such a cool social place to be, but oh, I'm not sure where I'm at with God, then you ain't got it. True, authentic believers connect with God, and that connection with God overflows into an utter love for humanity. If it doesn't, you didn't get the real thing. If it didn't change the way you see other people and the way you treat other people, then you didn't get the real thing. True love for God will overflow in love for humanity. So Paul saw They've got the real thing. 
So because he knew they were saved and because they were expressing that in the way they were living, he was praying for them. So Paul goes on and he, he talks to us about our security. You see, how do you know that you really got it? How do you know that you are eternally secure? Because that's a big issue. Is it like, oh, I, I hope God accepted my prayer? I hope when I accepted Jesus that I got saved? How can you be utterly rock solid sure that you got it? Well, Paul goes on in verse 13 and says, In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed in him, listen, it says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you got saved, God came and took up residence in your life. You were sealed. The Holy Spirit came and took up residence in your life. When you gave your life to Christ, he gave his life to you. You gave your life to him, he put his life inside of you. You see, becoming a believer is not just believing in a God that way up there randomly somewhere, but God himself, the creator, whom the heavens cannot even contain, comes and takes up residence in your life. That's amazing. That's mind-blowing that God would live in you. Pascal, the the famous French philosopher, said this, there is a God-shaped vacuum in every human heart. You see, I believe every human being, whether they acknowledge God or not, was designed to live in relationship with God. I believe every human being was designed to have God taking up residence on the inside. There is a throne on everyone's heart. Most people enthrone themselves on that throne. But God was meant to be on the throne of your heart. Pascal said, there is a God-shaped void in every human heart. Jesus himself, when, when he was uh, talking about salvation, he said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my words and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. When you connect with God, when you put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that God, by his spirit, comes and takes up residence in your heart. That's amazing. So from that moment on, where you goes, he goes. Now that's a scary thought. What you look at, he looks at. That's an even scarier thought. You carry God. That's amazing. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your heart. The Bible describes it as being sealed. In the Greek word for sealed, which I'm going to pronounce fantastically for you, is sphragizo. Where's Katerina? Katerina? Where's Travis? Travis. Why's Travis not at church? Is that good, Katerina? Oh, fantastic. Come on. I, I did well, apparently. So it's that word. And in the Greek language, the word sealed means this. To stamp with a signet or a private mark. For securing, for security or preservation, to seal up. 
in the Thayer uh, definitions, it, it describes it in this way, that in order to prove, confirm, or attest a thing, to confirm its authenticate, and to place beyond doubt. You see, when the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life, that's God sealing you and confirming that you are eternally secure. Here's what he does. It's a seal of your security and of your preservation. You see, in the olden days when the Bible was written, kings would place a seal on things to lock them up, to enclose them. For example, in Jesus' tomb, they put a Roman seal on the tomb to make sure that he was thoroughly locked up. It was an authority stamp on the tomb to lock it up. Daniel, when Daniel was thrown into the lion's den, the king placed a stamp, he sealed the lion's den. Now, no one could break that seal unless it was someone who was higher than the authority who placed the stamp. Only the king could break the seal or someone higher than the king. Now, the good news is for us is that when God placed a seal in your life to prove that you were eternally secure, there is no one greater than God. God, who is the Almighty, has placed a seal in your life and confirms that you are eternally secure. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, you are locked up safe and secure for the day of redemption. You're eternally safe. The seal also confirms you're an authentic believer and it places you beyond all shadow of a doubt. Romans 8, 9 says that anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Conversely, when you have the spirit of Christ, it confirms that you do belong to him. The Holy Spirit is confirmation in your life that you're totally his. We see in Romans 4.11, Abraham was, circumcision was given as a seal, confirmation of his righteousness. We see in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 2, the apostle Paul's apostleship was confirmed by the Corinthian people. It was a seal, it confirmed the authenticity of Paul's apostleship. Also a seal is a royal stamp indicating ownership. In those days when letters were written and they were wrapped up in that scroll and there was a bit of wax placed on that scroll to close the seal, the king would get his signet ring and would impress it on the, on the seal. Confirming, that's my letter. Confirming, ownership. Confirming, that's mine. You see, I like that picture because it also confirms that we are God's. We've become God's possession. It says we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. It says in um, Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Sorry, it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. Do, not, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You were sealed. You're God's. You're God's. In, the, in Alaska, when they cut down those logs, those pine logs, and they're about to float them down river. Before they do that, they put them through a, a marking machine, a stamping machine. And apparently these big machines, they get the log, and this big machine goes, thud, thud. And then it sends the log down the river. Then the next log comes along, thud. And it puts this mark into the grain 
of the log. And it does it so intensely, it does it so with such force, that apparently the mark can be seen for a good distance down the log, inside the log. So you cut the log, you can see the mark right through. And I like that picture. You become a believer then. Dud! Right through the Holy Spirit. Whoa! You're God's. Thud. So when someone says, I accept Christ, boom! That's what happened to them. Thud. They got the mark right through them. Interestingly, also, the. Um, let, 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 me, let me just make a point. Some of you struggle with your salvation. Some of you doubt whether God actually saved you. Some of you are. You feel you have to keep recommitting yourself to God because you don't think God heard your first prayer. I'm not talking about emotions here. Sometimes your emotions, I don't always feel like I'm a saved person. To be honest, I don't always think like I'm a saved person. I don't always act like I'm a saved person. And I'm better than you. (laughs) So if I struggle with that, you guys are in big trouble. (laughs) So you doubt, did God really save me? Did God really accept me? My emotions don't always feel like it. Um, I believe there's at least one person here. You were utterly abused as a kid. And, be- and because of that, it's given you such an insecurity that you have no security with, with people, but also you have great insecurity before God. You find it hard to know that God utterly accepts you. And you need to know in reality the activity of the Holy Spirit in your life is the utter confirmation that you are God's. He seals you. That means he locks you up. He authenticates you and he declares, you're my possession. But the Bible also says in verse 13 and 14, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, say guarantee, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The word guarantee in the Greek language is arhabo, which means a down payment a pledge, a part of a purchase, money or property given in advance as a security for the rest. Okay, I was on holiday in Austria a couple of weeks ago. It was very sunny. Did I mention that to you last week? Very sunny. On my phone it said it wasn't sunny here. Oh, that's a shame. It was very sunny where I was. It was lovely. <clears throat> some, of you, some of you haven't seen sun for months in Scotland. But in Austria it was very sunny. So I'd mention that. But that's not the point I was making. I, was, I hired a car when I arrived in Austria. I went to the, the hire place and they got the keys and uh, I, they asked for my credit card. And on my credit card, they charged me a thousand uh, euros as a, as a guarantee, as a confirmation, as a down payment on the car I was taking. <clears throat> I don't obviously look like a, a, a trustworthy individual. So they figured, we've got, to, we've got to take a guarantee this guy doesn't return, in case he doesn't return the car. So I took the car away. At the end of that time, the deposit was there. That was guaranteeing that I was going to return the car. Okay? Guarantee. My friends recently bought a house up in Slateford Road up here. And they're, they're building the houses just now. And in order, if you want to buy one of the houses that aren't yet built, what they ask you for and what my friends had to do was they had to agree to give them a sum of money as their down payment, as their guarantee, as their payment in advance, confirming that they will indeed come up with the rest of the goods when the moment's right. And they've bought that house. 
They've guaranteed that house. They've put a down payment on a house. Well, that's what the Bible's talking about. How does God let you know you're eternally secure? He places a guarantee in your life. And it's not an amount of money. It's him. You see, for him to confirm that you're going to be with him forever, he comes and lives with you. He comes by his Holy Spirit to live in you as the guarantee that when you die, you're going to live with him. That's the guarantee. The Greek word for guarantee also, the word arabo, also can be translated an engagement ring. That's a beautiful picture, an engagement ring. And throughout the Bible, we see this picture that God's people are like the brides and Jesus Christ is like the groom. And at the end of time, there'll be an awesome union between Jesus Christ and his people. That's the picture. But here, in line with that picture, the Bible tells us that God has given us a guarantee. It's like an engagement ring confirming what's coming. See, ladies, here's a tip, right? If, if the guy comes to you and says, hey, I love you and I want to be with you forever, well, take it like a pinch of salt. If he comes to you and gets down on his knee and he pulls out a 600-pound ring, the Americans, 600 pounds is not a weight, all right? <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a currency, okay? So it's not like, you know? Well, at least, at least I know where she is, you know? It's, he makes an investment. Now, now you take him seriously, okay? Now you take him seriously. Guys, this is why it hasn't gone right up till now, okay? Now you take him seriously. Wow. Why? Because not only has he declared his intentions, he has made an investment, an expensive investment. He's given you a wedding ring with a very big rock on it that confirms, I'm yours, honey. So the Bible gives us this picture as, as the guarantee of what God is going to do for us. The Holy Spirit comes as the guarantee of our inheritance. Isn't that beautiful? The Holy Spirit has come. See, we're going to be with him forever. But he confirms that by coming to be with us on the inside just now. That's amazing. Then Paul goes on and he prays for us. He prays that we will receive a revelation from the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 15, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him with him at right hands in heavenly places. Whoa! That's, that's incredible lots of things. That's amazing. Why was Paul praying this prayer? Okay, He says, for this reason, since I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I haven't ceased giving thanks for you. Why did Paul pray for them? Because he heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. What does that mean? He knew that when they had faith in the Lord Jesus, they now had God. So because they now had God, he was now praying for them to know that they now had God. Right? You see, you can have something, but it hasn't fully dawned on you that you've really got it. Paul says, for this reason, 
because of your faith in the Lord Jesus. In other words, I know that because you've got faith in the Lord Jesus, you now have something so incredible. He says, I'm not going to quit praying for you until you realize what you've got. Till the eyes of your heart can see it and grasp it and appreciate the magnitude of it. This is awesome. Paul was praying, and this is my prayer for you guys, that you will grasp who you've become in God's and who God is in you. And when you grasp that, your life will eternally change. I had two little cats when I was growing up in Glasgow. We got them from a little calf ref, cat refuge. They were very lonely. And sad. Worse than that. Those cats were very timid little things. And when we went to collect them, I remember them in the cage, kind of cowering to the back of the cage. Uh, but we got them out of the cage and put them in a box and brought them to the house. We thought, you know, they're in a secure, they're only about six months old. So I don't know what had gone on in their life up till then, but they had had a pretty rough beginning. So I took them to the house, opened the lid of the cat box, and they jumped out and they disappeared. Now, great having these pets. You know. <clears throat> you know, pets are meant to be fun. You know. Couldn't see them. Disappeared for a week. They disappeared, and we found them under the chest of drawers in the living room. They were there. And you could see them with the wee green shiny eyes in the back, kind of all paranoid and stuff in the back. So we had to pass the milk through to them and the, and the meat through to them and all that. <clears throat> and there they stayed for the first, um, first few days. And do you know what? Those cats, after a while, eventually chilled out a little bit uh, and they became a little bit more comfortable with me and with my sister and with mom and dad. And eventually they started kind of feeling a little bit more at home but whenever we had a visitor man they just disappeared they were paranoid cats you know Roddy I wish I'd known you in those days you'd have <laughs> taken them through a few sessions and they got them sorted Roddy's incidentally a trained psychiatrist for cats just so you know that okay some of the cats make more sense than some of you guys when you come and see them just so um, anyway so Roddy sorry cats were, were very 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 paranoid and they, they were hiding away and uh, we, we couldn't, you couldn't, no connection with them at all. And they were kind of, they kind of warm to you. But to be honest, all their life, and they, they lived till uh, their teenage years and they're both now dead. <coughs> but throughout their lives, they remained paranoid little cats. Now here's the reality. I don't know what their six months had been like before we owned them. But I know that since owning them, I know they were in a secure home. They were loved. They were provided for. They had an entirely different identity. But I have to tell you, they didn't make the most of it. All their life, they just existed. Paranoid little cats. And they didn't need to. Paul says, for this reason, since I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, I'm going to pray that you know who God is and that you know what he's done for you. Because you see, you know, there's so many Christians, they've accepted Christ and Christ has accepted them. But they remain unchanged, paranoid little beasties till the day they eventually make it through to heaven having done nothing with their lives. Our mission statement as a church is to see the lost one and the one winning 
We're here to reach the unchurched. We're not here to reach the religious people. We're here to reach the unreligious, people who have walked away from God. That's what we're here for. That's why we exist as a church. That's very clear. But we're also here. Once we reach people, we want to help people become winners in Christ, to live life in abundance that Jesus paid the high price for you to live in. Jesus didn't just die to get you to heaven. He died that you'd have an abundant life on earth. If we believe that Jesus died just to get you to heaven, when we baptize you, we just hold you down until no more bubbles appeared. Because <laughs> we'd be helping you fulfill your destiny. But we pull you up, coughing and spluttering, and say, come on. Bam, live for God. I believe you do not need to be insecure before God. I believe if you only grasped, if the eyes of your heart could only see the incredibleness of what God has done for you, you would never be the same again. Paul prayed for us to know God and know what he'd done for us. You know, we, we might have said, well, Paul, pray that I get money. Paul, don't pray, don't pray for knowledge and stuff. Pray, pray, pray that I get money. That'll solve all my problems. Paul, pray that I get a wife. That'll solve all my problems. God, Paul, would you pray? Pray that I get a plasma TV. Pray I want a holiday, Paul. Pray that I get a holiday. I want a yacht. Please, Paul, pray that I get a yacht. I want a pay rise. I want recognition. Paul, would you pray? Give me a different wife. Paul. Paul didn't pray any of these things. Paul prayed that we would know stuff. Do you know what? When you know God, when you understand who you have become when you became a believer, who took up residence in your life, when you understand that, stuff means zip. You know, stuff will come and go. Have a yacht if you want. It doesn't matter. Even have a wife if you want. But if you've got God, <laughs> if you've got God, you've got everything. Really, you've got everything. Paul even said that. He said in one place, um, all things are yours. You've got God. You've got everything. And God's got you. Paul prayed for a number of things. He prayed, first of all, that we'd get revelation of God. He said in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That means a heart that's perceptive to wisdom and revelation, a spirit or a heart. In the knowledge of him. Paul prayed that you would have a revelation knowledge of God. You see, you can't figure God out by philosophy. You ain't going to understand God by philosophy. You ain't going to understand God by debating him or bouncing each other's opinions off each other. You can't figure God out. You understand God because he reveals himself to you. You get a revelation of God. You can't figure him out, but he can reveal himself to you. And Paul prays that you will get a revelation of him. You know what blows me away? The best-selling Christian books today are to do with your self-esteem, to do with becoming financially independent, to do with finding a purpose in life, all of which are important. But where are the best-selling books about knowing God? Because as I say, if you can connect with God, that's everything. That, you won't have a self-esteem issue then. If you can connect with God, he'll give you the wisdom for financial independence. You can connect with God 
He's going to show you the way forward in life. That's paramount. That's number one in your life. Everything else becomes secondary. The Apostle Paul, I think, had an inclination that the church at Ephesus was struggling this issue. You see, they were into Christianity. They loved the stuff. They loved discussing things. They, they were very theological. They were very accurate. They ticked the lots of boxes. But Paul was praying, now listen, hey, let's pray that you know God. Later on in the, in the New Testament, at the very end of the New Testament, Jesus, in the book of Revelation, speaking to churches, spoke to the church at Ephesus. And this is what he says to that church. In Revelation 2, verses 3 and 4. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name. And you have not grown weary. Guys, you take lots of boxes. You've persevered. You've endured hardship for my name. You've not grown weary. But Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. You see, you can know the stuff. You can know the facts and figures. But if you don't know him, you've got nothing. Knowing him is everything. You were born to have a relationship with God. Knowing him is everything. That's what Paul prayed for. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. For while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who thinks often of God will have a larger mind than the, one, the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect Nothing will so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the subject of deity. My greatest prayer in my prayer time. You know, how do you spend your time praying? Well, I, I, this is how I pray. I get up at six in the morning and I go for a walk. That's how I start my day. And I start my day that way. That's, that's how it works for me at best. You know what I do in that time? You might think, right, there's hundreds and hundreds of people coming to Destiny Church. How does Peter spend his prayer time? You know, praying for this person, praying for that person, praying for this situation, praying for this issue, praying for the, the crazy staff member, praying for, you're going through all these things. That's not, I, now I do pray for you. I do pray for situations I'm aware of. But I don't, my predominant time in prayer is not spent on huge lists. You know what I spend my time mostly doing? Thank you, God. Thanks for this day. I love you today, God. And I spend time listening. I spend time praying in tongues. I spend time worshipping. I spend time giving and receiving. And I just have a nice walk with God to start my day. And I go through my list as well. But, but even if when I don't get through my list, if I've connected with him, I tend to find that the church grows and my day goes well. You want a, an insight into prayer? You think of King David. Now he had many responsibilities. He, he ran a kingdom. King David was one of Israel's most famous kings. You can imagine he could have had a lot on his mind. He had military campaigns. He had political issues. He had rebels in his midst. He had lots of issues and things that he could have been concerned about. And you can imagine, well, what must his prayer life be like? I pray for this region. I pray for that territory. I pray for that battle. I pray for that income. I pray for that situation. He didn't. You've got a great insight from the Bible into the prayer life of King David. It's called the book of Psalms or Psalms. Now, you, how did he spend his time? How did he spend his time? I worship you, God. I love you, God. I connect with you, God. You see, relationship with God is more important than even the stuff you do for God. Make sure you've got your connection with God. That's everything. That's everything. Second thing Paul prayed for is, Paul prayed 
that we would get a revelation of the hope to which he has called you. He says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. He didn't pray that you'd get a calling in life. He'd pray you'd understand the calling in life. You see, the fact is, every human being has a calling in life. Actually, whether they acknowledge God or not, every human being has a purpose. You don't exist for some meaningless existence. You're created in the image of God to fulfill great purposes in God. Now, when you come to know him, all of a sudden that, that takes on a whole new significance. But you are here, you are designed to accomplish something great. And Paul prays, God, he didn't pray, God, give them a calling. He prays, God, let them know the hope to which they were called. And I see the calling as, as twofold. It has, a, it has a now application and it has an eternal application. In the now, we're called right here and now to accomplish great things in life. That's what urban poets, uh, their scribble show is all about. It's about finding your purpose, not being constrained, living the life you were designed to live. You have a calling in the here and now. As a church, we have a calling. We exist to impact the city. We exist to reach the unchurched. We want to touch every person in this entire city. And we want to, from here, plant churches around Scotland and the world. That's our dream. That's why we exist. And that's what we're determined to do, God willing, in the generation ahead, in the generations ahead. Just, just so you're on, so on your radar, on the 13th of September, we're launching our third service which is a 12 o'clock service down in Leith. That gives us an additional 200 seats to fill with precious people. And can I encourage some of you, if you're from that part of town, um, even to get out of your comfort zone and not come to the bigger service here, but go to the smaller pioneering service there and invite your friends along. That's an opportunity to connect with the city. We do that for the sake of the lost. We have a calling as a church. You as individuals have a calling. But also God, I believe Paul was praying, let them not just understand their calling in the here and now. Let them understand the hope to which they're called. And I believe that's speaking primarily of your eternal hope. Have you grasped the absolute reality that the moment you accepted Jesus, you from that moment onwards have an eternal life? Have you grasped that? That's huge. That is massive. And it will utterly change the way you live life. It will complete, if you've grasped that, you will live in an entirely different way. You won't live for temporary stuff. You'll live for eternal stuff. You won't live with fear. You'll live with hope. You will have an entirely different expectation and you'll treat people differently as well. Have you grasped the reality of the hope to which he has called you? You know, my mom, uh, she died in 19... 98. Mum was an artist, a painter. And she was an awesome woman, loved God, really loved God. In fact, the last few years of her life were, were the best. She just went up and kept going. She was, she was a phenomenal lady. In that last week of mum's life, having had a terminal disease and having walked by faith through that terminal disease and literally been pain-free for several years when she told, originally when it was diagnosed, that she'd have months. She lived for years, pain-free, actually with no treatment, just by faith. In the last week of her life, however, she did have pain, and she became physically very disabled. On the Thursday, she died on the Sunday, and the Thursday, she was sitting in the living room downstairs in her house in Glasgow. And there she was sitting with her feet up on a, on a footstool, 
in a, in a comfortable kind of armchair. She couldn't move by this point. She couldn't walk. And she was putting her feet up because it gave her some relief and it stopped her feet swelling. So she was in this situation. She had a blanket on her. And it was late, so we all went up to bed. I, I came down the next morning expecting mum to be there because she couldn't move. But instead of mum being there, her bedclothes were perfectly folded and laid in the seat. And she wasn't there. I thought, where's mum? So I went upstairs and peeked into mum and dad's room. And mum was in bed with dad. And dad said, Peter, come here. In the middle of the night, mum, I heard her run upstairs and jump into bed with me and said, Jesus is taking the pain. I thought, wow. Anyway, at this point, mum wakes up. I said, mum, what happens? And she said, Peter, last night I was sitting beside the fire as the fire was flickering. It was late at night. You'd all gone to bed. And Jesus, he, he came and he, and, and she couldn't tell me. I was saying, what did he do? She couldn't tell me. Tell me, tell me. She couldn't tell me. But Jesus had appeared. She met Jesus. Now from the Thursday, from that moment onwards, that day, mum had an, an ecstatic joy. And you know what? From that day, she just started physically just drifting away. She started just dis- disappearing. It was like from that moment, she was in heaven. She'd caught a glimpse of something on Thursday night. She had utter relief. There was an intense sense of joy. Man, you should have seen her face, honestly. And even as she slipped into subconscious, as she went into the hospital, under her breath, you could hear her talking about Jesus and what she'd seen in heaven. And Paul prays, could you just grasp what's happened to you? Now, oftentimes at the end of our life, it's often the case. Maybe some of you can relate stories to me of where your loved ones at the end of their life had had a glimpse of what's just coming. Now, without Christ, it's a fearful glimpse. But with Christ, that is an outstanding glimpse. But how about glimpsing that now? It's just as real. It's just as real. You, when, it, when we say you're saved, that's not just cool. That is outstanding. You're saved eternally because God chose to come and pay a price for you on a cross and rise again, and by your faith in him, you've been eternally saved. Paul prays, just, I pray God, let them get that. Let them understand the hope to which he has called them. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10, what no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things that God has revealed to us through his spirit, the Holy Spirit can even give you a glimpse into things you can't understand up here. In your heart, you can understand things and believe things that are coming. <clears throat> the third thing Paul prays for is this. God, give them a revelation of the riches of his glory. It's this and it says, Ephesians 1.18, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. <clears throat> Two big surprises with that verse. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Two massive surprises. Number one, I thought God owned everything. Why does he need an inheritance? Number two, that's the wrong way rounds. You know, we would have no problem with that verse if it said, our glorious inheritance in him. But the verse doesn't say that. It says, his 
glorious inheritance in us. That's amazing. The saints, that's amazing. Okay, let's make it personal. Imagine I'm speaking to you. Yeah, you. Imagine I'm speaking to you and I say, I want you to grasp his glorious inheritance in you. Now, what you would say is this. You got the wrong person here. You don't know me. You obviously don't know me or you wouldn't say that he's got a glorious inheritance in me. You don't know me. You don't know the thoughts I've had. You don't know how dark sometimes things get in here. You don't know where I've been this week. You have no idea about my life. How on earth could he have a glorious inheritance in me? Sure, maybe that person across there in the room. But his glorious inheritance in me? Absolutely. The saints. (laughs) That word saints means holy ones. Hi, holy ones. Say, I'm a holy one. How many people feel it? (laughs) Graham. Yeah, well, well done, Graham. Holy one, man, his glorious inheritance among the holy ones. Am I part of this? Well, if it was to do with you and if it's to do with me, no way, Jose. But it's not to do with you or me. Jesus Christ, the only holy one, died on the cross for us unholy ones so that we could become holy ones. He died on behalf of an unholy world so that we could become holy. And the Bible says that you have become his glorious inheritance. That's what you've become to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns the lands, the nations, and the seas. He owns this world. He owns the galaxies. He owns the universe. He owns the stars. He owns the planets. And yet, when it comes to you, you, it says of you, you have become his glorious inheritance. You've become it. Glorious inheritance in the saints. That's what God says says about you. That's how God views you. That's how God sees you. It says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, you are his chosen race, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And fourthly, Paul prays, God, let them have a revelation of his immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. Ephesians 1, 19 to 20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? Listen, according to the working of his might, great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Paul refers to a historic event here talking about the resurrection of Christ. And he says that that Holy Spirit that's come to live in you is the same Holy Spirit that when Jesus Christ had died on that cross, was utterly dead and was laid in a tomb, that three on the third day, the Holy Spirit came into his body and caused him to be alive again. That Holy Spirit who caused the resurrection of Christ has taken up residence in your life. And Paul prays, God, let them understand the immeasurable greatness of your power towards them who believe. It's an immeasurable greatness. In other words, you can measure some great powers, but you can't measure this great power. 
This power of the Holy Spirit that God has placed in you, you can't measure that. That is immeasurable. Notice also the Bible says, his immeasurable and great power towards us who believe. It's going in a direction. This is not just randomly immeasurable great power. This is immeasurable great power towards us. Say me. No, no, you. <clears throat> Say me. Say that's talking about me. No one said that. Say towards me. The Bible says his immeasurably great power towards us who believe. God's power is in a direction. Do you know what? God isn't neutral when it comes to you. God isn't sitting in a fence when it comes to you. God is very much for you. God's immeasurably great power is towards you. Pastor, I'm just not going to over... I've been depressed for so long. I'm never going to overcome the depression. Do you know his immeasurably great power towards you who believe? I'll never be anybody. I'll never achieve a thing in life of any significance. Have you grasped the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? I'll always be a dweeb. No. Have you ever grasped the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? There's no way. The doctor said it's impossible. The doctor said, terminal. Have you understood the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? This church could never grow. No, no, no. Speak of your own church. Have you not understood the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? This venture could never take off. Even though I felt God inspired me to do it, I'm not sure if he's really that for me. No, no. Have you grasped his immeasurable greatness of his power? towards us who believe. You grasp that, you'll have an entirely different expectation in your life. Um, The Bible says in Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Do you know what? God can do more than you can even imagine he can do. Did you know that? Now, I can imagine some big things, but God can do more than you can imagine. That's great. Uh, Owen was telling me the other day there, uh, Owen's one of the overseers in the church, he's on staff. Owen has always suffered with uh, hay fever, intensely, you know. Uh, so he's kind of, it's summertime comes, he looks forward to summer when, when the sun comes out on that day, that day, that day was lovely. And, but also the thing he dreads about summer was the hay fever and the pollen in the air and all that. His wife, Emily, is from Sweden and they often go back to Sweden and it's even worse in Sweden. The pollen counts are high and he reacts big style. I was speaking at the Solihull Renewal Center and Owen had traveled down with me and we were staying in the same room together and um, it was really interesting. And um, <laughs> Owen, because of his allergies, it was summertime, he didn't sleep much. So he was tossing and turning and in the morning, he looked, he looked I mean, at the best of time, anyway, he, right there, he looked really bad. He looked really bad. And he was kind of dribbling and kind of, morning one. He was just not with it, really. This is pollen. This majorly affects, you get the picture? 
Okay, right, you got the picture. Uh, are you here today, Owen? There's Owen up. Hey, Owen, you right? Was that an accurate description of what, man? <laughs> anyway, he, three weeks ago, before he went over to Sweden on holiday, he was with his sister Natalie. Where's Natalie? Natalie. There's Natalie back there. Uh, and he was with his folks and with his sister. And he was really feeling groggy. Now, he did lots of people pray for him. So he wasn't really in a kind of expectant mood. Natalie said he was really suffering. He felt, felt like the side of his face was burning. And he said, he was describing how he was feeling. And Natalie said, listen, why don't we pray for you? And Owen, to be honest, the man of faith that he is, was saying, he didn't say, in his heart he was thinking, I've had so many people praying for me, I'm, I just, no, I just leave it. But anyway, Natalie uh, prayed, and he instantly had relief, this burning sensation left. And I thought, whoa. Anyway, three weeks have gone by, he's been in Sweden, he has had not one trace of allergy, not one taste of reaction. Isn't that great? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Warren Wearsby said, in the four gospels, we see the power, God's power at work in the ministry of Jesus Christ. But in the book of Acts, we see that same power at work in ordinary men and women, members of the body of Christ. What transformation took place in Peter's life between the end of the gospels and the beginning of Acts? What made the difference? The resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence in your life. You become not an ordinary person. You become an extraordinary person with the power of God towards us who believe. Becoming a believer is not just turning over a new leaf. It's connecting eternally with God and being empowered with him. He comes and takes up residence in your life. You're no longer empty. Now, believers, there's more. There's more. You see, Here's something, and this is a very important thing to say. Not every believer, every believer has the Holy Spirit. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. But not every believer has had an experience which the Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's true. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, but not every believer has had this experience called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There's lots of verses. Let me give you one in particular. Acts 8, 14 to 17, and then I'll end. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received, had accepted the word of God, okay? A whole lot of people in a place called Samaria, just some random area, had accepted the word of God. What does that mean? They had become? Egypt? What? They had become what? Believers. They'd become believers. So these were people who were saved. Would you agree? When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God. They sent Peter and John to, and when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these were people who were believers. They'd been water baptized, but according to this, they hadn't received the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter and John placed their hands in them and they received the Holy Spirit. If you want other examples, Acts 2, Acts 9, verse 17, Acts 10, 44 to 48, in Acts 19, 2 to 7. In every one of those instances, the baptism with the Holy Spirit was a separate instant from their conversion. Other than Acts chapter 10, all the others were a separate occurrence, a second experience. I was 15. I'd given my life to Jesus. I'd experienced this transformation in my life. And then 
I was about several months later, I was in a church that didn't talk about the power of the Holy Spirit and didn't expect any miracles. Very traditional church, full of lovely people, but no expectation for the miraculous. And as I was reading in the Bible, I was lying in my bath at the time, reading in the Bible about the book of Acts and about how the Holy Spirit came on people's lives and powered them and miracles happened and all that. And I thought to myself, look at that. It's that simple. I can just receive that from God. So I remember quickly, you know, finishing that reading, ran across to my friend's house. Sorry, got out of the bath, got dried, uh, put some clothes on, ran across to my friend's house. And I was so excited, I was buzzing. And I said, Brian, look, look at this. The Bible says we can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now he, like me, was part of a church that didn't really talk much about this stuff. A very traditional church full of lovely people. Um, and I said, could you just pray for me? This was six months after I'd been converted. And I got on my knees in his bedroom and he placed his hands on my head and he said a very unhype prayer and just asked God that God would fill me with the Holy Spirit just as he filled people with the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. All I can describe was in that moment there was an incredible sense of the presence of God in that room. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit in a way I'd never experienced before. And I started speaking a language that I'd never spoken before in my life and I was fluent in it. No one had to tell me to do anything like that. It just happens. I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. And some of you believers here, the Holy Spirit is in you, rest assured. He's sealed you, he's guaranteed your inheritance. But I have to say there's more. And even if this has been your experience before and you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit before, the people who at the beginning of Acts got baptized with the Holy Spirit, as the persecution kicked in, they came back and asked for more boldness and the Holy Spirit filled them again. You can get filled again. You can be filled again with the Holy Spirit. Church, my dream is to see a Holy Spirit-filled church. <clears throat> Not kind of weird, swinging from the chandeliers, crazy kind of Holy Spirit-filled. I'm talking about credible. Just like Jesus was, very cool, very normal, but in the most incredible sense. Connecting and relating with ordinary people in Edinburgh and yet living and moving and breathing in the power of God's Holy Spirit, seeing outstanding miracles that will bring him glory, seeing lives turn around that we couldn't do, but God did, seeing people freed from drug addictions that would have taken months of detoxing and counseling, yet God did something in an instant, allowing God's power to do what God alone could do, immeasurably beyond all that we could ask or ever imagine. Spirit-filled church, that's what we're belonging to be. And I want to encourage you today, if that hasn't been your experience personally, you're a believer, sure, but you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you run to the front of the ends. Don't kind of, all right, if, well, maybe, I'll, no, no, no. Well, God will say, all right, well, maybe. <laughs> the Bible says in Acts, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 14, 1, earnestly desire spiritual gifts. It's not kind of, don't sit in the fence in this one. Come and get it. At the end of the service, when we close the service, you come forward. We're going to be praying for the sick as well. If anyone who's sick here, we want to pray with you, lay hands on you and ask God to do a miracle for you. But those who need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, you come forward and there'll be some leaders available to pray with you. I believe that God wants to empower you. You see, understanding and knowing the immeasurably great power towards us who believe is not primarily an intellectual knowledge. Do you hear me? It's not knowing the facts and figures in the Bible verses about the Holy Spirit. It's knowing the Holy Spirit in experience. 
certain things you should know. Certain things you must not just know about, you must know the reality of. You see, knowing all the intellectual facts and figures about the Holy Spirit will not change a city. Knowing and in experience, in reality, the power of God's Holy Spirit in your life is what will change communities and a city. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much that when we accepted you, something so magnificent took place that all of us in this room, most of us, I'd say, just didn't get it. We didn't get the scale of what you did. We didn't grasp the magnitude of the the change that took place, the transformation that took place. God, you, you took up residence in our life to confirm that we were eternally secure as a down payment of our inheritance to come. And God, I pray like Paul prayed, I pray for this church, that this church would know the hope to which you have called us. I pray that this church would understand your inheritance in us. I pray this church would start to grasp, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way, the immeasurable greatness of your power towards us who believe. And God, most of all, I pray that this church would know you authentically in relationship with you. God, I pray that in Jesus' name. God, I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know you. Anyone here today who's distant from you. God, I pray for anyone here today who hasn't said yes to Jesus, who hasn't stepped out and really put their faith in you. I pray today that you would give them the courage right now to cross that line and to make that fantastic decision. Just for this moment, keep your eyes closed. I'm going to give you an opportunity today. If you're here today and you know that you are not saved, you know that you are not connected with God, you don't have the assurance that you're going to heaven forever, and you know that you're a sinner and you know you need Jesus' salvation. You might not understand all these things, but you know in your heart of hearts that this is totally the truth. I'm going to give you an opportunity just now to put things right for all eternity. I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray a prayer in response to him. A prayer where you put your faith in him and you make a commitment to him to be his for the rest of your days. If that's you and you know that you need God and you're willing to put your faith in him and commit your life to him, then I invite you right now to pray with me just now. I'm going to pray a prayer. I invite you to pray it with me. Repeat it after me quietly under your breath. Let it be your prayer. Let it be your heart's cry to God. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you for your incredible love for me. Thank you, God, that your love motivated you to come, Lord Jesus. Thank you, you were willing to die on the cross in my place. Thank you, Jesus, you rose again on the third day. I ask you for total forgiveness. I ask you for a new start. Jesus, I believe you're risen from the dead. And right now I make you the Lord of my life. 
I put you first. And to the best of my ability, I will follow you now for the rest of my days. Thanks God for hearing my prayer and for accepting me today as your child. Keep your eyes closed. If anyone prayed that prayer, if you made that commitment to God, I would count it a privilege if I could pray for you just now and ask God to bless you as you embark on this new life with him. If that's you and you prayed that prayer, could you just identify yourself to me very briefly just by quickly raising your hands and putting it down again? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Just put your hand up quickly. Thank you. Anyone else? thank you so much for my friends today who have said yes to you who have embraced you Jesus and who have put their faith in the truth that you died for them and rose again I thank you in this moment as they put their faith in you the Bible promises them that they now have eternal life as they've asked your forgiveness the Bible's crystal clear that you grant it and I pray right now God they would know the complete acceptance complete forgiveness of God Almighty in their lives. Fill them with your Holy Spirit in this moment. Come and take up residence in their hearts and help them from this day forward to live for you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Do you have any idea what just happened to you? Do you have any idea what just happened to you? Wow. Go read the verses again. Outstanding. Those who put their hand up, a transaction has just taken place between you and God. And this is the turning point in your life. Uh, a couple of my prayer partners before you go will, will come. I've got some prayer partners who I'll, I'll ask you to come and chat to you. Those people who put their hands up. We've got a pamphlet which helps explain how to walk as a Christian. And they'll offer to pray for you again. Uh, so feel free to take them up on that offer. Don't rush off. Let's stand to our feet. We're going to worship God to end the service.